Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Curiouser and Curiouser. Um, this is Sadiu, and welcome. A couple of housekeeping announcements. Um, first of all, I am terrible at asking people to subscribe uh, and follow, but please do that. Please do subscribe to the show so that you can keep updated because we're going to have a little bit of a um, non-schedule schedule and uh, experimenting with a couple of different slots. So we generally do 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesdays, but we are going to look at other slots um, as we book guests and have topics that we're going to talk about. So do subscribe and follow. Um, second, um, we just played two songs which have nothing to do with the 80s or 90s. And um, that's because my guest requested them. And when I pointed out that neither of them had anything to do with the 80s or 90s, I was told that she liked them. So uh, that's why we heard first uh, Stevie Wonder, I just called to say I love you, great song, and then also David Bowie, Space Oddity, uh, also a great song. So um, I am delighted to uh, start part two of the conversation with Dr. Mangalam Srinivasan, who also happens to be my mother, um, Journey Through America. We had... Uh, we had started with the 60s and the 70s, and uh, now we're going to enter the 80s and 90s. And so this is going to be a bit of a free-ranging conversation about her experiences, observations, um, the socioeconomic, political, uh, entertainment, uh, sort of academic, all every angle that you can think of, climate uh, in the United States, uh, as well as anything else that she wants to talk about. So welcome to Curiouser and Curiouser, Dr. Srinivasan. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. And um, uh, great to be on this. And I hope uh, that uh, people who are listening would find it interesting. I'm sure they will. Oh, and the other thing I should add is, you know, our format is we normally... Um, do encourage calls and questions. Um, it depends basically on the show. Whenever we do music shows, they tend up just sort of being uh, a monologue. Uh, but uh, sometimes when we have panels, people like to ask questions, uh, either, you know, calling in or putting them in the chat. And um, the only issue with that is I barely look down at my phone because I am basically diplo during this session. I'm like looking at my computer and my iPad and a couple different phones and things. So um, if you do have a question and I don't see you um, and you're in the call in queue, also feel free to throw it in the chat um, and we will get to you. Um, and so... Let's get started. So, um, you know, we talked, I don't want to go over your background again, you're an academic, um, done a lot of very interesting things. The reason we thought this would be interesting is because um, you seriously are Forrest Gump. Whenever we mention anybody, whether it's uh, Angela Davis or Fidel Castro, you seem to have had some interaction with them or uh, were friends with them or knew them or were invited to their countries or something. So I want to get started with the 80s. We went through the 60s and 70s. And so what was the, let me start out with this question, which is what for you was the transition from the 70s to the 80s? Was it something that was marked and what sort of marked that, uh, the transition here in America between those two decades? Just that, uh, you know, 70 was, uh, 60s and 70s were the West Coast, 
and uh, we started about um, uh, 70 uh, to get to Washington DC so from then, then on uh, it became the Midwest, East Coast and South and then beyond uh, this time toward Europe and so on. So that was a transition and and you're talking I, about your personal your personal journey. My personal journey is yeah. about uh, you know starting to move into different direction and also from um, from banking and finance to academic uh, situations where I was teaching and heading a technology policy council at the American University in Washington, D.C., and teaching, and a number of different things connected with uh, uh, with academic. At the same time, was pursuing something else at the University of Maryland in astronomy. So there's a whole lot of different uh, areas that came into being, and an involvement with the academies, uh, National Academy, the National Science Foundation, the Smithsonian, and the U.S. Senate and Congress, and their work. And uh, and whenever I was asked to do something for them, whether it's Brookings or anything else, I was available to do that. And many times at the, the public television as well. And uh, so this indeed uh, was the year there. 80s. So, but what was going on in the backdrop? So when we're talking about sort of, you know, we talked about the difference between the 70s, there was a, it was a time of unrest. And we sort of talked about the 60s and 70s through the lens of um, basically your connection with, you know, all of these different things that were happening. And what <clears throat> were there, what was the difference, the transition between going from the 70s to the 80s, and even from the 60s? I mean, we once talked about you know, the fact that back in uh, what's now Silicon Valley, uh, when you first got there, it was just orchards as far as the eye could see. We talked a little bit about that. It wasn't sort of the tech uh, mecca that we think of today. Um, and in fact, I had an uncle that uh, there were technology companies that used to go and get fired every three months from a different technology company because they weren't startups then, but they were coming and going, certainly sort of foreshadowing. Um but we talked about sort of that counterculture and how you were involved in, you know, we talked about People's Park, which you had a very actually seminal role in that. Um, but what's interesting to me is when I think about the transition, um, you think about people like Ben and Jerry's, right, who were uh, even Steve Jobs, all of these guys that were all about 60s and said they were about India and peace and love and all of this stuff. And then they flash forward two decades later and these guys become, you know, uh, basically, you know, barons, uh, robber barons, some would say, villainous others would say, but they basically turn into the very sort of things that they were against and fighting against. So maybe we want to like dig into that a little bit. What, what accounts for that? Well, this is an interesting question because this is a question very, very significantly. Andrew Huxley, who was the president of... Um, Royal Society on visit to India and having lunch with me and one other person asked me the same question. What is exactly was happening in the United States at that time from helter-skelter yeah. and going here and there from pillar to post 
completely confused no directions anywhere yeah and whether it was high school or anything else what happened well what happened is what happens when there is a black key in the piano the space where the the brain had not stopped it was churning it was absorbing everything that was happening all around and it was churning out of the churn rises the cream to the top and uh, some of the cream was about creativity in each of the people and the focus on the broader spectrum of uh, the world uh, world religions uh, specifically eastern religions uh, consciousness and uh, you know thinking of science in terms of uh, eastern religions where and physicists like uh, uh, frigol capra uh and uh, who wrote the book uh, tao physics and all of these people are trying to explore uh what is happening uh there when the east clashes come to clash with the it's not clashing east does not clash uh has come to the west and how the west is absorbing it and he makes a very interesting point about that all of this was happening at the same time and trying to find out what's going on in terms of the 80s uh in uh, the the creative culture of the US and especially in the late 70s and so on and the people who were involved in it inspired by it whether they were the beatles or they took a trip or they went and see some swamis or took a course in uh, uh, tabla playing or um, any of the musical uh, performances that were happening and so on still at that time the people the indian diaspora was very very small very small very few people in berkeley uh, very few in san francisco mostly the embassy staff and myself and a few other people and uh, so we were kind of oddity so the uh, the museums will ask us to come in and do some uh, interesting program or feature some costumes of india or some bridal shows of india and i did all of that myself because i have a huge collection of costumes and with the people whom i could gather there were not many indians and so the creative juices and i would imagine especially when it comes to technology and science the major contribution of the east cannot be denied uh, when they came to the the west coast uh, the people and carl sagan was uh, speaking all about the uh, little blue planet from out there all alone uh, in the cosmic space so you know you have all of this colliding but not clashing out of that came the extraordinary creativity of science technology at the same time music all the combination is what gave birth to uh, a new kind of american uh, creativity which also knew by very nature of being american of this soil being able to find out how to make it work how to make it work definitely denies uh, 
uh, has to have something about resources. And they knew how to do that. Not many of them are able to, were able to do, find out the equation in which uh, the ultimate reality was financial success. They didn't know that, but they were, they were clever enough to hire people who knew it. For example, Bill Gates. And all of these people had somebody to come and advise them, and they took those advice seriously. There you have a new technological revolution that spurned all around. It was not science, because science quietly works at the academic universities, publishes papers. They talk to each other, and they, uh, they get uh, sometimes ousted out. Sometimes they are... Uh, taken to very great heights, including Nobel Prize, but it's quiet. Not the technological revolution, because it was brought on by the new people, the new people whose whole idea was the total universal consciousness, which is, of course, technology. Okay, so it sounds like what you were saying is a lot of these people were influenced by Eastern culture. They were creative. They had the space to be creative and imagine. Uh, and uh, maybe they were willing to take risks at that time, you know, where they didn't care because they didn't see their future as potentially being ice cream makers or personal computers. They were just out there you know, Steve Jobs famously, you know, experimented with eating only apples and being like a strict vegetarian and following Neem Karoli Baba. I mean, these guys necessarily were not thinking about starting. They didn't go to Harvard Business School and they weren't thinking about what can I build or how can I make the. It was more about a sort of spiritual quest. But I think it's interesting how it went from there to becoming completely corporate and becoming sort of the icon uh, and many of them sort of kept their values in the sense that, you know, if you look at the Ben and Jerry's guys, they literally looked like they traveled in a spaceship from the 60s or 70s. And of course, Steve Jobs famously, you know, remained vegetarian, very minimalist. Uh, I think he even, you know, got married in a, in a Buddhist or uh, some kind of ceremony, the Zen. So they kept those things, but you would be, that's that kind of stuff isn't necessarily public knowledge. What most people see is these guys that are, you know, incredibly fierce competitors, uh, extremely capitalistic, uh, you know. And so it's just sort of interesting to me that out of that 60s and 70s, like, you know, you know, just sort of free exchange of everything and stuff, it went to kind of the opposite, the pendulum swaying in the opposite direction. It really is not up, uh, the opposite. It's a natural evolution. So what you do when you have all of this and you need to give it away, you can't give it away. Uh, nothing is given free. And you need to get uh, things distributed. You need resources for it. And there were people who were ready to, uh, make money out of it. Yeah. Uh, the outside influence on these people, it's very interesting. Uh, the Google people who were working, the two of them were in Stanford. They're 90s. Those guys are 90s. Uh, correct. Yeah. But, you know, this uh, this makes a point. They were in uh, Stanford making the uh, uh, little algorithm, uh, trying to just um, communicate within the university and uh, with uh, with their friends and uh, and in other departments and uh, Sriram uh, walks in and he was asked by a professor can you help these two guys who are sitting at the 
uh, end of this. Uh, Sri Ram is uh, just uh, for the audience. Sri Ram is uh, the the uh, the guy who worked at um, um, Ram Sri Ram. Um, oh right, he's like the very famous. Uh, yeah, uh, right. He's a, a friend Google of yours. Board yeah, member. yeah. He's an American business. Yeah, yeah. He's a good and friend. John yeah. Jungli. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, he uh, founded this Jungli uh, thing and cash. He was actually the first. He was one of the first investors in Google and a founding board member. Uh, correct. Yeah. And from he uh, he I just forgot. went to see a professor at Stanford. And the professor, after finishing the business, and he was telling him, can you help these two guys who think they have hit on something they want to make? And they are trying to get some money and so on. So that was how Google was brought into the venture, uh, the capitalist, uh, what's the the people with whom uh, Ram Sri Ram was working. And uh, so uh, this this is how... Uh, something happens when these the people who are very idealistically, technologically inspired and oriented, and they think they think that they have done something. Eureka moment had come. They are communicating with the universe, communicating with the cosmological components. All of this is happening around them, and then they find then what? What next? Yeah. And that means that they need to test it every. Every proposition. But let me ask you a question. What what then makes Americans go out and start a company versus going into the Himalayas and becoming one of those, you know, fakirs or guys that, you know, grows dreadlocks and is sitting up in the Himalaya? I mean, what where's what is the what is the the division there? Right. They all end up going to start. Very, very few of them go on to become Krishna Das. Who could have probably gone on to start a company? I mean, he's that vintage, right? The Krishnadas is the Kirtan singer who was also a devotee of Neem Karoli Baba, who uh, uh, Steve Jobs used to follow. So why is it that you know most of these guys, you know, went off and started a company? Whereas if you know, I think I don't know if I'm thinking about you know people from other countries. If they were following down that path, the natural evolution isn't to go start a company. And become, you know, a multimillionaire, a billionaire, uh, and change, you know, the way life as we know it, really, with so so many of these companies. That has to do with something. That has to do with something totally alien to the rest of the civilization. Although the rest of them have also caught on to it. Yeah. Uh, the why that is so is in America first of all, in American soil, and how they grew up, and their ability to be able to make a living on their own. And no parental control. Nobody told them, yes, you have to do this. You have to go on to this, to this, to this, to this. They are, they are willing to just bypass steps, jump to the topmost. And the parents would tell them, you will fall from a very high. They said, that's fine. And they just got on to it. And this is the spirit, the American spirit of wanting to live a good life, wanting to share, wanting to have fun, yes. wanting to work hard and play hard. All of this is important. And absolutely something else, like your brother, my son, would say, disconnection to family. But part of the reason why they moved away from something to where there is a So they're filling control. a void. Yeah. So they're in some ways filling a void. Or... No, it's not a void. They had an opportunity not to have to listen and to obey. They could absolutely be disobedient 
if we, if I were to use my parlance, an Indian parent would think that you are disobedient. Uh, American parents would think, well, he made his own choice. Right. Uh, so the the basic mentality is that things are that to choose from, and first of all, and last of all, in all of this conversation is one thing. This may not succeed. They go in with uh, with an item that they want to try, tell themselves this will fail. This may also not work. Uh, and the next thing I'm going to do will also bankrupt me and I will fail completely. And then get up and try again. Yeah. And this is, this is not how... And it, it is interesting. That is where when you do not have to support somebody, your parents or your siblings, get them through or get your uh, sisters, uh, you know, married or gone through college and nothing. So you can fail. You are free to fail. And there are no aspirations attached to failing. Yeah. And that is why the hippies who, who could well, have I just failed wanna, completely. Yeah, I want to make one thing, though. I mean, because people say this to me as a venture capitalist, and I always talk about also failing. But I always say, well, yeah, it's great to fail, but you have to win at some point for people to sort of to, to think that that's great. You can't continue to fail. You can't be a born loser, you know, and keep losing. At some point, you have to win in order to be able to say, well, I failed four times. I just wanted to make that point. And then second of all, that I think that there's no sense of shame about those things whereas in older shame. cultures you know which i think is i think that's changing it because everybody looks at america as a model but in older cultures you know if somebody goes out and fails then your father will take off his shoe throw it at your head and be like i told you you idiot you should have gone into the family business or whatever and it becomes a big humiliation not just for the kid but for the family um there, there was you know they had exited the community so without the community, you do not have a, a reference point that the next door guy is going here, next door guy is going there. And this is something that Americans took the risk and the risk paid off. And the fact is also, there was a new money that has come in. Uh, you know, the wars are all over and uh, Vietnam is over. Everything is on. And then an infusion happened. Once they had decided that they needed to uh, do something, then American immigration opened to the East and brought in a whole lot of engineers and uh, technologists and scientists and so on from various places, mostly India. This was predicted from 1970 onwards from the UN studies, CIA studies, uh, National Science Foundation studies, that there would be yeah, they, they have been monitoring how many people were going to school in India, from school to college, college to PhD degrees, and specialized engineering and uh, medical and other professional schools. And the professional societies were coming up in, all over, but mostly in India. It was not China. It was not Indochina. It was not any of the Arab countries or mid, Midwest and that? so on. Because India is a, basically a country that believes in education. That's a tradition. And so once the independence uh, came and there were no more foreign rule and no more, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, resource difficulty because they can always get a scholarship 
all that they have to do is to study and uh, this is this is something that ha- has happened and there were so many people coming out and uh, CIA UN and uh, NSF they have all declared the next decades will all of the workers from for all of the world will come from one country basically india but then there were other countries that followed the model singapore uh, and so many others so you have a fund of asian thing open 82 immigration made indians come to this country and who were they inviting basically engineering talent technological talent scientific talent medical talent nurses and teachers and so on and then silicon valley uh, began to grow because yeah. there was a, there, there were well, people who can take and run with that well it's extraordinary though because a lot of these and we should do a whole another show on this i mean if you look at every major company today it's being run by an indian whether it is microsoft or google or pepsi maybe uh ibm uh adobe um and also uh oh the god there's big fashion i don't know if it was christian dior louis vuitton i mean and it's like these are people that come from different backgrounds in india lower middle class lower middle class but, but different backgrounds meaning all over the country so they're not they're from different ethnic backgrounds uh, different uh, uh economic backgrounds but they've all risen i think that's a different topic but that's very very interesting so you have that sort of influx in the 80s um and so w- there was a culture change i mean you know uh you probably you know olivia newton john just passed away and um you know i was a little kid but that was you probably don't realize this but that that movie and that music was huge when i was in grade school and i remember all of that it wasn't i don't think i was old enough to go see the movie either greece or any of those later disco movies uh that came later but um so the music also went from you know stuff that seemed very idealistic to um a different kind of music um and a different kind of sort of entertainment um i think the first big horror movies also started to come out whether that was the exit so i don't know if it was reflecting a time in society uh in the, in the late 70s 80s um uh you number of number of uh, things were happening all around uh, and basically the and ability the ability to be able to experiment and without uh, fear of failing so whatever happened so you have but then the community that came to take on technology they came from a very disciplined family oriented uh, culture Uh, with the result they were the machines that were working constantly producing things and it did not stop no matter what yeah and they were able to do that which also americans noticed from coast to coast then the west west uh, i mean the new york coast started also um getting into this so this is this is partly the the american ingenuity the ability to take a risk and to invite people accommodate them and learn about them and so on so um, uh, a lot of different things came together and made all of these people the millionaires that they are with that and also you know the other thing i was thinking is there's also a lot of um 
creative stuff that comes out of conflict in this country more than anywhere else, I think. I don't know if this is true in other countries. You can tell me this. Uh, I mean, my experience working abroad was not that. But even if you think about the arts, whether it's, you know, the Eagles or you think about all of these different bands, you know, Fleetwood Mac, all of these bands that uh, created all of this amazing music in America, all the art, there was terrible conflict. And yet they somehow stayed together. I mean, really, really terrible. And you generally don't see that also in other cultures and maybe in Northern and Western Europe. Uh, but very specifically here where people were at each other's throats, they would break up, but then they would come back together again. And even at the height have not, you know, and I think there's also some of that sort of fuel that out of conflict, out of void, out of pain comes this sort of creativity uh, that drives all sorts of that, things. That too. is true, but that is not entirely That's not uh, the whole correct. reason. Yeah. Uh, now, for example, if you take the Hindu joint family, there is no other uh, kind of uh, situation where people have essentially everything is contradictory, conflictual, argumentative, everything is, uh, you know, different, different opinions. But the ultimate equation, all the, the terms may vary, vary in an equation, but the equation itself is the ultimate reality. What is the equation? The family. Now extend it to the community. America extended to the nation. Yeah. This kind of a situation where, uh, uh, you know, a, a complete... Now, I don't think any... Uh, 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 on a global level, since you brought up the global level, on a global level, even religion is born of great debate, suspicion, conflict, arguments, etc., it's not like somebody said there is something and everybody said yes. And uh, so, you know, you see it again and again and for millennium in places like India from there on to the east. Now, what is the... So I just want to paraphrase what you're saying just to understand. So you're saying that in places like India, philosophy and religion progresses through argument, through debate, through somebody saying that's wrong, I don't agree with you, versus being told uh, maybe another philosophy. Suspicion, that... rejection, but uh, when do they really become? Yeah. So the, that's it. Yeah. Um, so I just, so, I mean, do you have, I mean, I want to hear about sort of your personal journey. I didn't know if you wanted to make any comments on uh, what was happening politically or like the women's movement, what was happening in the academic world where you were. Uh, I know that in the 80s, you ended up going to become a advisor to Mrs. Gandhi in India, the, the prime minister, the one of the handful of women leaders that we've had. And that too, she was in the 1960s and then again in the 80s. Uh, you were a scientific advisor to her. Uh, so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that, a little bit about what was happening in yes, America. Uh, in 75, uh, following a, um, an article I wrote, Mrs. Gandhi had become uh, a sort of a mini dictator because she just assumed, um, uh, she just declared emergency uh, following a great big uh, conflict in the continent and became uh, declared emergency and suspended some rights. 
and that got into a great amount of uh, uh, clashes within India. And finally, I met her during that time. I had written an article about um, um, that India now has democracy does not give her the opportunity to say it's because of democracy I'm not able to do it. Now that, that she is a dictator, what prevents her from achieving what she said democracy couldn't? And I wrote an article of that thing. Following that, she asked me to come and meet her in 75. I went to meet her uh, when um, everyone was afraid. Nobody knew when somebody would come and raid their house or close down their press or take somebody to uh, the jail or something of that kind. It's still an Indian dictatorship. There was not big bloodshed or a huge uh, amount of uh, um, public uh, uh, flogging or beheading or any of those. And I think you also said once that nobody is above the law in India, that even the prime minister can be taken to jail, which is something that wouldn't happen in this country. Yeah, that is correct. And several times. So Mrs. Gandhi... Uh, Mrs. Gandhi was, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, Delhi was like a very quiet place at that time because everyone was afraid. They knew that I was going to see Mrs. Gandhi. So many people gave me little notes to talk to her. My son has been taken to jail. His press has been closed, etc. So I went to meet her at uh, her office. She herself was waiting at the um, uh, elevator. When the elevator opened, I saw Mrs. Gandhi with her uh, private secretary session. And he said, uh, she said to her, she said to me, Mangalam Srinivasan. I said, uh, Madam Gandhi, very pleased to meet you. She said, come in. And we went there to a very large uh, office with a very large table, all empty, and that's on one side, uh, there was one picture. I couldn't see it because it was turned toward her, not me. And uh, and one painting behind her, which was done of Sindhu, the Indus River in Ladakh. After all, Mrs. Gandhi's ancestry is Kashmir. So these were the Kashmiri mountains and the Indus flowing through and nothing else. And on her desk, she was wearing a cotton sari with a cotton blouse, just looking splendidly beautiful. And she had a little notebook and a pen. So she sat looking at me. And what year was this? 1970. Okay, so this wasn't the 80s or the 90s. Yeah, 75. But, but, we're, getting, yeah, but, we're, getting, but we're getting to yeah. the 80s. Okay. And so she uh, asked me, she said... Um, she had read my article. She said, she asked me whether democracy is not an excuse for me anymore, is it? I just sat there because I didn't want to say yes or no, because she already, she already had read the article. And what was the, the, the main point of the article? It was uh, against, it was against the emergency. That she had called. Yes, okay. and the suspension of some of the fundamental rights. And she, why do you think she called you in? She heard of, about me and that if she read the article, on top of it, her friend somewhere 
in Canada also told her about me. So uh, I uh, was anyway that beside the point. She had reasons to ask me to come in. She thought I was dynamic. I was an Indian woman in the West yeah. and with Western sensibilities. So she thought that it would be uh, interesting. So we had a conversation and then she asked me, she admired my sari and she knew where it came from because she herself wore such saris. Rukmani Devi would send her every time when there was... And who, who was Rukmani Devi? Was, uh, Rukmani Devi was one of the most important uh, um, leaders of uh, uh, um, intellectual leaders was the president of Kalakshetra, one of the famous art school, uh, which was reviving all arts, whether it was uh, dance, music, textiles, uh, sculpture, uh, and so on, for all of Asia. And it was the premier institution to which uh, people came from Korea to, uh, uh, to from Indonesia, Malaysia, and all over India, and so on. She had, uh, Mrs. Uh, Gandhi was aware of that, and in her orientation toward textile, she looked forward to Mrs. Gandhi, I mean, uh, Rukmani Devi's uh, uh, interest coming on to her. So in any case, she was admiringly asked me uh, many questions about my personal life, and then she asked me, whether I would like to come back and be a part of her team. She said, there's much work to do. You can do much more. I see that you are uh, quite upbeat on many things. And you being you're, you're standing so tall and unafraid, we need such women. Would you come and join me? Because you lived in the United States at that time. I was just living to be in clear. the US. Right. So I told her, uh, Mrs. Gandhi, I would come to India if you um, abandon war. She looked at me uh, for about three minutes. She did say nothing, didn't say anything. And then she said, you know, I used to talk like you uh, when I was in school. The realities of this side of the table, Mangala, are very different. So if you want me to abandon war as a tool for policy change, externally or internally, and I am unable to commit that to you, maybe you will reconsider what you said. And from that was about the most significant argument. Then I started giving her these little notes. Mrs. Gandhi, do you know these people had, your people had gone and closed this press. Uh, this woman's uh, husband has been taken into custody because he was writing against you or speaking against you like that. She listened to uh, about 10 minutes worth of complaints. And then she asked me, anything else? I said, I have much more, but I just want to tell you that this is, uh, there's a lot. And her son was doing much of uh, driving away people. And so she listened to all of that. After that, I got scared. I said, yeah. maybe I would be arrested yeah. and taken to Jeez. dungeon. <laughs> and so I, I just got scared and I looked at her. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, you know what? 
let's talk about something else. Yeah, God. Uh, so I asked her, uh, I am very interested in painting and art, Mrs. Gandhi. You have behind you uh, a river flowing through a canyon and very, very beautiful. And uh, she said, yes, that's my favorite painting. And uh, it's a painting by, I forget the name of the person who did that. He's a famous painter, Punjabi painter of Indus, uh, you know, flowing through Indus and Ladakh. And uh, she showed me around her office, walked me around and showed that painting. And so she said to me, and by the time I had had a cup of tea, but no one else was there other than her. She said, uh, it is so nice of you to come. And I hope you will come, consider coming back again. And uh, she came out, saw me um, uh, going um, to the elevator. And then her private secretary accompanied me downstairs. And that was the first time I came home and I lost rest of the day. I don't know what hit me. I had, I was profoundly influenced by her. Yeah. I became extremely, I could not get up. I lost time. When the people with whom I was staying came back, this is one of her own minister's house. He, she came and she said, Mangla, how long have you been here? Uh, it's uh, six o'clock. Let's go and have some tea. I said, oh. So I had lost nearly most of the day because I was, I had no idea what hit me. So you were so, you just lost, you just... I lost the, I lost You just time. came home stunned by the conversation. Uh, well, by, by her, by, there was an enormous power about her. I didn't feel it at that time, only when I came home. Yeah. And then after that, uh, sporadically, I communicated with her. And then 82, she asked me again to come back. Uh, please come back. There's a lot to do. And by the time she has been following my work with the National Academy and SF and so on, and people were the ambassadors, every ambassador in Washington have been in our house, as you know yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And so they were also... Uh, communicating with her about the Smithsonian, about this, about National Academy. So she asked me, uh, how can I not ask you again? Please come back. Please come. And so it was much too much to refuse. And I decided that I would go to India. So you went as a scientific advisor. And I know there's so many, we have so much we need to get to. I mean, this is crazy. Everything from the non-aligned summit to the assassination of Orlando, Letelier, who was the uh, uh, the leading opponent of a Chilean dictator uh, in 1976, and you had had lunch with him just a week before that happened. So I want to get to sort of all of these stories, which sort of mark this time period, like the 80s and 90s. But I, I want to, since you became her scientific advisor, you lived in India, tell me a little bit about the non-aligned summit, because that is an extraordinary story. Um, and one that you have told, I've, I've heard at many dinner parties and people are just stunned when I share little bits and pieces of it. But I wanted to hear a little bit about that. And then as well as you brought a Supreme Court case in India in, in those days. So um, whichever way you want to start. Well, uh, we, when I arrived in India, we all took a, um, 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 we all went together. 
you were we about meaning the family, family. Right. and uh, daddy, myself, but your children, you and uh, Shreyas and I, and we all went to India. And on the way, we stopped in Taiwan. Right. And uh, Taiwan has invited me to come following an invitation from Chinese ambassador to me to visit China. And uh, right around then, the Taiwan ambassador uh, called me and asked me uh, that I would I should also come and visit Taiwan. And the Chinese ambassador's visit was being put together with some senators joining me, some other people joining me, and so on. That was taking some time. But in the meantime, we were going to India uh, and on the way to the to uh, India, so I thought that I would stop at Taiwan. The reason I was stopping at Taiwan was I had a specific invitation from Taiwan to come to the Atomic Energy Control Board and talk in general about bridging the gap between public information and uh, regulatory function of nuclear energy, of which I was... Uh, starting a group at the American University in Washington, D.C., with a stellar advisory group of Alvin Weinberg, the IASA head. Who was just, to, I think Alvin Weinberg was the director of Oak Ridge National Laboratories. Correct. And, and uh, several National that. Academy people, and uh, so many people from IASA head, uh, so many people, International Atomic Energy Agency head, and so many other people were part of it. And this was the motive for Taiwan to ask me to do something. Yeah. Although, oh, while I was conducting the study of how to bridge um, the gap between public information and uh, regulation uh, within the nuclear energy industry, where everyone thought nuclear energy means nuclear bomb is going to blow up like a bomb. Basically, the nuclear regulatory uh, commission and others, Atomic Energy Commission, had failed to uh, give a lot of information on what this energy is, how it works, how it won't work, how it's not a bomb, how it could become a bomb. All of these were not, the public did not understand. And since your father was working in the Atomic Energy Commission as a head of the reactor safety, I also had knowledge of this because he would talk to me about it. He was directly concerned about that. So we both uh, were involved, but he was not involved in it, in my studies. When I when we went to Taiwan, that was one invitation. The second invitation came from Taiwan Institute of Management, where I was going to be giving a lecture. We arrived in Taiwan, and uh, we had a very interesting time there. Uh, One of the things I remember, it was the first place, this was in the early 80s and we were just kids. It was the first place that you saw fake meat. One saw fake meat because there was no fake meat in the United States before then, but because we were vegetarians and uh, guests of the state, everywhere we went, they had that lazy Susan filled with things that looked like cold cuts. And they would say, no, 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 it's Buddhist food. It's Buddhist food. So everywhere we went, I remember that. And I think we were probably some of the first American children in Taiwan, right? Correct. 
Correct. In fact, uh, you know, I probably am the first Indian woman to have gone there. Daddy might have been one of the very first few because neither India nor the United States recognized Taiwan. Right. The, and so under one China policy. And in any case, uh, after that, uh, what was interesting was in one of the, the Atomic Energy Control Board, when I was talking about the bridging the gap between public information and regulatory function, uh, the head of the Atomic Energy Control Board of Taiwan, having found out that Dari was also reactor safety, the AEC, asked him, um, Dr. Srinivasan, would you like to also comment on this? And he said, no, I'm just accompanying my wife. I'm not here on any official uh, visit. Uh, I do not have permission to speak. And uh, I'm not interested in giving any information. It was very interesting of him to just forthright say, I'm just here with my wife. I have nothing to do with this visit. Yeah. Then we went to India. We and went- I want, yeah, I want to I wanna also just get to non-aligned summit because that's actually the most, the Supreme, we can do the Supreme Court case, but I want to also hear about non-aligned summit. So, so um, which one would you want at first? Uh, I would say if you want to quickly just talk about the Supreme Court case and then talk about the non-aligned summit, I think that yes, was fascinating the, because of the figures involved, Fidel Castro, Yasser yeah, Arafat. The, this, uh, uh, the, uh, when we went to Delhi, before just I a, went to just Delhi. Just a little bit about the Supreme yes, Court case. Before I went to Delhi. Uh, I had to, um, I did not need a visa. I was an Indian citizen. Uh, And uh, uh, your father needed a visa. And then you both uh, were asked to take a visa. And then they said, uh, the the council general in, in the visa section said, you know, Dr. Srinivasan, if your children... You know, if their father were Indian citizen, they would not need a visa to visit India. I said, what? I'm an Indian citizen, and that doesn't count. And I went to Narayanan, who was then the uh, ambassador, and he told me, I'm shortly leaving, so don't sue me. But uh, when you go to India, of course, sue everybody, the new ambassador as well. He was laughing. And so I uh, went to India, and then I decided... I had to take the visa. Once I went to India, I re- I refused to register you as foreign nationals, you and uh, Shreyas. And they uh, told me, and I purposely, in order to go to a Supreme Court, you have to be aggrieved on a principle which violates the constitutional right. You can't just say, you know, somebody bit me on the road, so I'm here in the Supreme Court. So here was a constitutional principle where a man's uh, paternity counts in terms of visa to Indian children, but not maternal uh, rights, mother's rights. So I just refused to register you, and they didn't care. And I immediately said to them, my children are here without registration. And I, I have not registered them. They I said, no like problem. You, I feel like you are looking for trouble everywhere you, you go. You have to look for trouble. And so, but they said this, they knew Jeez. that I was working we are so uh, with different. an institution. You're like a, a huge, even though my whole job is investing in companies and taking risks, I'm not a risk. I think I'm much more like daddy. I don't like a ton yeah. of risk, but you take a ton of risk. Yeah. In, uh, in fact, when we were there, I was attached to an institution headed 
by Science and Technology Institution by Professor Ayman. And, and I was really advising Mrs. Gandhi as often as I could. And uh, so, because people knew it, when I advised them that my children are here without proper uh, uh, documentation, they said, no problem, we'll, we'll uh, uh, regularize it. I said, no, you can't regularize, that's against the law. And so after six months, I'm supposed to again, you're supposed to leave. Again, I notified them, my children will not leave. It's been six months. And they said, oh, they don't have to leave, we'll make it. I said, no, it's not all right. And they are under risk uh, of uh, being uh, arrested and being in, etc. No, madam. Then I said to call Lily Thomas, um, a Supreme Court lawyer. And I asked her, you need to now go to um, Supreme Court. It was widely published case because this was an anomaly that was transferred from the British constitution into Indian constitution. They forgot to change it while giving equal rights and protection under law to men and women. They had taken this one has not changed. So I said, this is anomaly should be brought to the court's notice. It should be immediately uh, removed because it reaches, it just uh, is interfering with the fundamental right of a woman a mother and so on. It was most widely published Supreme Court case because it's a constitutional case. The justices simply thanked me for bringing their notice, the anomaly. So I suppose it was taken out. So uh, now, while we were there in India, one day I was sitting in and my... Just to, just to back up, it was really, you were living there. Daddy was back in the United States. I just want to make clear, you were there being an advisor to Mrs. Gandhi when this happened, when yeah. the because we're moving on to the non-aligned summit. Correct. Yeah. So, and I think just back up and just, I think you need to say what the non-aligned summit is or what non-aligned nations were, because I don't know if that's still, that, that phrase has any meaning. Uh, well, it's beginning to have some meaning now, but non-aligned summit was the newly um, um, released colonies. Uh, it was Nehru's idea. Nehru, Nasser, Nkrumah, and um, um, Kenneth Gounda, and all of these people together, uh, um, Sukarno, uh, and in Indonesia, and Chu and Loy uh, in China, got together and said, we no longer have to be colonial subjects, so we are non-aligned. We are not aligned to the, uh, to the Soviet bloc. We are not aligned to the Western bloc. Yeah. Yeah, we would take issue case by case. Which is interesting. I just want to bring up, people don't talk about non-aligned, but in the case recently of Ukraine, for instance, I think if you're sitting in the United States, uh, or even perhaps I will just extend that to maybe the UK, Western Europe, you think that the entire world is together on what's happening in Ukraine. And when actually the majority of the world's population is silent on this has not taken a side either with Russia or with the United States. But that's not the news that we get here. Well, because non-aligned countries... I'm just making out a point that we... Correct. Can't. And not... this is very topical because now, as you know, Mexico's president has proposed there should be a, a new committee against war should be formed, which should come uh, have three people, uh, Modi of India, 
Guterres of um, the UN Secretary General and Pope Francis. These three people should be about against anyone. He just made it yesterday. Oh, okay. So uh, the reason that most of the countries would not go is because there is a third venue. This is what they even told when America was going into Afghanistan in the first place. We are the third venue. Let's negotiate. We know the place. Indians, Which, who do you mean? India? India, yeah. yes. We speak all the languages of the region yeah. and etc. But in any case, so um, non-aligned uh, summit uh, took place. In, uh, so it's the non-aligned nations, the nations that aren't correct. aligned with the with the Soviets or the United correct. States. Correct. Every now and then they would, they, you know, in, sometimes in Indonesia, sometimes in in Malaysia, and sometimes in uh, Ghana or Kenya or South Africa and so on. And uh, so this year, the year that we were there, it happened in uh, in uh, New Delhi. And uh, while this was happening in New Delhi. Uh, I was one day minding my own business in my office, writing a huge report on uh, uh, um, to biotechnology development and utilization uh, in India. And so this was a report I was finalizing. And there was a little meeting going on in my office. And uh, between me and my research associates and assistants, and I had a call. And uh, the caller announced himself as um, calling from uh, the uh, uh, presidential palace, Rashtrapati Bhavan. And I thought it was a joke. And so I said, yes, um, have I reached Nistats? Have I reached Mangalam Srinu? I said, yes, you have reached the Buckingham Palace. And I was joking with him because I refused to believe that the Rashtrapati Bhavan... Uh, Which is, you have to explain what that I is. I have, I already said that. Okay. Uh, that Rashtrapati Bhavan is the presidential palace okay. from the president's house and uh, the invitation. And then... But you were working for Mrs. Gandhi at that point, right? Correct, correct. And so... He said, um, uh, two minutes later, he called me again. Madam, this is Major General Manon. I am calling you from Rashtrapati Bhavan. I have to extend an invitation to you on behalf of the Prime Minister of India. She wants you to be her personal guest at the uh, non-aligned summit luncheon on such and such a day. Please let us know that you will be able to come. There will be 17 heads of states and just yourself. We might also find someone else uh, uh, who might come, but uh, basically right now you are the only name who is not the uh, prime minister or president and, and so on. I could not believe it. I still thought it was a joke. And uh, then I hear her, Professor Rahman, from behind saying, he said it's correct. Then, uh, so he was I telling was, you that's a real call. This is a real call. So I said, uh, later on, I told him I'd be most pleased to uh, be honored to be there. So on the day of the luncheon, 
I wear the most beautiful sari I had in my collection. And I have to also just interrupt and say that your collection of saris and fabric and tribal costumes from all over the world has gone on exhibit in the Smithsonian Institution because it's a phenomenal collection. Correct. And so I, and in many other museums, in the both in the West and the East. Yeah. So I immediately uh, wore uh, one of my best saris. Uh, in in Delhi, it will be very difficult to find jasmine. So anyway, I had jasmine delivered from southern India by plane. I was wearing my jasmine and, uh, uh, you know, was ready. Since I had no car in Delhi, I um, hired this uh, ridiculous three-wheelers scooter and rickshaw. Uh, a rickshaw. And uh, so, and it makes a huge noise. And so the Rashwadi Bhavan has a huge uh, cavalcade road, uh, which they call Rajpat, uh, on which the ceremonial uh, procession takes place. And the, and you are not allowed to go with a school, uh, three-wheeler into the place. And there I was going, so at the gate, which was about two miles from the <laughs> rail palace, somebody stopped me. This is not allowed. I said, I'm going for lunch with the prime minister. <laughs> and they said, madam. In a rickshaw. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the president. They said, madam, you cannot go beyond this. So here I was stopped. And then they called to find out that it, this is a genuine person coming in a rickshaw. And so they sent a car to pick me up. It was two miles. So I went there. I was so excited. I was there about 10 minutes early and uh, to the uh, to in front of the huge palace, uh, Mughal palace, uh, Rashtrapati Bhavan, uh, which was built during British time. Behind that was the Mughal gardens. That's where the lunch was. So I was, I was uh, getting in and... Um, as I entered, uh, I saw a junior minister with a famous name, Nehru, Nehru's cousin, actually, Nevu. He was a junior minister. I knew him, but he didn't know who I was. So he looked at me and he thought, oh, this must be one of the girls who had come to put some flowers or something. So he just was tapping on my shoulders. And see, everything is okay. I said, fine. I went inside. I just roamed around like a dog inside. And then I went to the kitchen. I wanted to see. Uh, and because you also don't just see if the chef has come. So you took the opportunity, opportunity to, to go yeah. everywhere okay. and see the chef. And so then In finally, the when I came out, yeah. when I came out, uh, there was Castro standing. Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro standing. And with his entourage, he also came early. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I went and, and uh, he said, at that time, since Arun Nehru didn't know who I was, so he didn't introduce me. But then I went to Fidel Castro and I said, uh, President Castro, I'm Mangalam Srinivas and I'm a guest here. And he said, oh, and he said, oh, you speak Spanish because I was saying it in spat smattering of little Spanish. He said, yes, of course. And uh, then Arun Nehru just stepped back. His he face said, dropped. Yeah. I God, I made a what mistake. have I done? I hope she doesn't tell Miss, Mrs. Gandhi. Because I came back and I just like he tapped me on my shoulder, I tapped him on his <laughs> shoulder and I told him everything is fine in the kitchen. 
And so, and then he withdrew Don't worry, to the I, did a, I did an inspection of the kitchen and everything. Yeah, fine. and he came to me and Castro and I were talking. And uh, Castro said, uh, you spoke Spanish, uh, senora. I said, yes. Um, how come? I said, because I live near you. He said, near me? And I said, yes, I live uh, in the United States. He said, wow. He recoiled when you said he that. He recoiled because he was holding my hands. He took his hands back. I said, that's all right. You can still hold my hands. I am a friend of yours. And he said, what do you do there? Why do you live there? And then he started telling me about the U.S., what they did to him. Instead of telling me that there's been many assassination attempts against him, he told me, do you know they put um, uh, some kind of a chemical into my shoes so I will lose my beard? Because oh his beard was his uh, trump card. People really liked his beard. and so He liked his beard. Uh, yeah, and he just, he said, my beard will. And I said, oh, no, that should not have been. So we had an excellent conversation. Uh, we talked about it and he said, when you come back, I hope it shall be soon. You will be my personal guest. And I said, that will be such an honor. And he said, in the meantime, I am instructing my uh, representative, the ambassador at that time was called, the Cuban embassy was called Intersection, Cuban Intersection. At the intersection, until that time, I was, I am most charmed. I am most charmed. And he was flirting with you, right? He was, and then Mrs. Gandhi was coming in and she said, oh, I see that you have met our, <laughs> our great, uh, uh, you know, great Indian woman. And she lives in your side of the world, like Mr. President. Yes, yes, I had the pleasure. And uh, so Mrs. Gandhi was introducing me and she she introduced me as gift of our gift to the world. And I just was standing there trying to figure out what why, why this is all invited. happening, why I was even there. <laughs> and I was not a head of state or head of anything. And so the, here I was standing. And then Fidel, as soon as she left, she said, let me go check the kitchen. You wouldn't have the queen check the kitchen, president of the United States kitchen, uh, the French president, but Indian woman, Indian president or prime minister, Chinese prime minister, Asian Not just culture. women. I think you need to clarify that. Yes. Everybody would. Everybody yeah. would go and check. Yeah. And I said, uh, because for them, for them, they'd see it as hospitality. Yeah. And so she said, as soon as she left, Castro told me, Indian women are the most beautiful. I said, that definitely is true of Mrs. Gandhi. And he said, and you, and, you know, and so on. And, uh, you know, we had a long conversation. And then he said, the other thing about India is, I've been everywhere. I don't see military on the road. I don't see too many police people on the road. And this is a democracy where 800 million people seem to be going somewhere and knowing where they are going. You have explanation for that, Senora. I said, is it not the same in Cuba? Do you have military outfit and soldiers everywhere? 
He said, let's not go in there. I am talking about India and so on. So we had a very, very interesting conversation. And he said, I hope I'll get seated next to you. (laughs) And so by the time the other people had come, Yasser Arafat came. Kenya's um, uh, President Arab Moy had come. And uh, there were a couple of kings. And let's not forget. uh, Iranian... uh, and Iraqi, uh, Iranian president had come. And then and Iraqi Saddam. Saddam was not there. Almost the next to him had come. A deputy prime minister had come. As soon as uh, Iranians saw the, dip- the Iraqis coming at the same time, that was diplomatically no, no. So he said, I'm leaving. And you, because, got and you have to explain why. Because Iran and Iraq were in a war. At war. You, remember, many people... That listen also are Gen Z. They probably have no idea, yeah. but they were and, at war at that time. Yeah, it was a diplomatic mishap. And, uh, so they so, should not have been invited yeah. together. So the Iranians were running away. Iraqis were running this way, not knowing where they were going because it was a huge palace. And and Mrs. Gandhi heard about it. She came running after and she told, no, 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 just stay there. And then she had a Kashmiri divider put in between uh, two tables, round tables. One was uh, for... Uh, some six, seven people, another six, seven people here. And she seated me next to Arab Moy and uh, between Arab Moy and Yasser Arafat. (laughs) And then she told me, uh, then next I'll change you over there. And you know. So she was asking you to co-host between these two tables. Not co-host. I was a guest, but she 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 just wanted because the other people wanted me also there. And so, uh, and uh, so she was the, the Kashmiri divider kind of made it, and they both, both Iranians and Iraqis praised the intelligence of the Indian women, <laughs> and they came back. It was the same dinner, and so we had. So and they all, were in the same room with the divider dividing them, and you were going back yeah, and forth. And also the king room. of Bhutan, that's where we met him, yeah. right? And or you so, met him, rather. Yeah. Correct. And so the, these people were in between uh, there, and um, so I was talking and Yarafat was uh, laughing and joking. And then he asked me, I told him I met Shafiq Al-Hut and at the conference in uh, um, Jericho Beach. And he said, <laughs> Habitat Conference. And he who? said, oh, yes, at Shafiq Al-Hut uh, and his military attache. Oh, okay. Arafat's military. He was more virulent than Arafat. Yeah. And he was really a hardliner. Yeah. He wanted Israel to be completely eliminated. So we um, we talked about all of that. And he talked and about... And when I came back to the apartment, people would ask me, was Arafat really ugly? And I said, well, let me not go into it. The worst is not yet. And so we had uh, much fun with Arafat. And Arab Moy sat like an oak tree, didn't say a word, didn't move this way or that way. He carried a huge scepter. He was oh. a dictator of Kenya. Oh. And uh, much... Uh, so he had the scepter with him? With during... him. And I was trying to clutch it and touch it. Some people came running to me and said, don't touch it. And But he didn't say anything. Some people came running to you and said, don't touch it. Yeah, from outside. Yeah. And uh, they, you're not supposed to touch it. But so we had, and then president of Somalia was there talking about banana. And Mrs. Gandhi <laughs> joined us. And on the other side of uh, next, next to Somalia president and Somalia president, 
Mrs. Gandhi said, these are very special bananas. They come from Tanjaur, where Mangala is from. And this is uh, wonderful bananas. We have hundreds of varieties of banana. Then Somalia president, we have bananas too. They make people strong and you know, <laughs> uh, things like that. So that was the whole thing about banana. And uh, then I went to the other table and then talked to all the other people over there. So anyway, that when it ended... I mean, you're saying people, but these are all the heads of state heads of, of state, various countries. Heads of yeah. states. So each one of them immediately gave me invitation to come and visit, be their visit. Yeah. So then uh, as I was leaving, Castro came after me and said, don't forget, you're coming <laughs> to Cuba. And I said, Mr. President, I shall never forget this invitation. This is the most serious opportunity that's been given. I'm coming. Yeah. And, you know, when I came here, when I came out, there was a huge crowd waiting at our apartment building because they had known I had, uh, had lunch with Castro. Because Castro was a huge hero in India at that time for standing up to the United States. All of these children and boys and everyone wanted to know what Castro is like, Castro, 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 and so on. And then Kushwan Singh came to see me and asked me. And Kushwan Singh is? Uh, the very uh, renowned uh, literary author, uh, editor of the Hindustan Times, and a very, very important writer, very controversial one as well. And SC. a personality, yeah. And, uh, so, and a good friend. Uh, a very good friend of mine. And when I told him, uh, he said, um, can I write about this? to the Hindustan Times, I said, no, uh, I am going to write about it. <laughs> and he said, it'll be very nice. I'll give a nice third uh, leaders, non-aligned leaders, me to talk about bananas. <laughs> That's what Kushan Singh said. I said, you can that give would be the headline. You can give the headline. World leaders yeah. need to talk about bananas. And I said, you can give the headline, but... Anyway, that's what they do. Editors cross the lines that you give, and then they will put their own heads headline, which would be sexy, which would be attractive. And I said, I'll do that. Uh, and I will write it, and you give the headline. He laughed. So it became a very... And recently, a couple of years ago, after Castro died, my friend Nirupama Rao, who was the foreign secretary and also the ambassador uh, to Washington, she posted my... Uh, circulation on Somewhere. the Facebook, and and a lot of comments came about it uh, about Castro. Yeah. So. so okay, so you so you left that, and I think one interesting. I'll just share this quickly, and you can correct um, when you had sort of called Daddy back in the United States, and uh, he was the head of reactor safety for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the U.S. And of course, we lived down the street from a very conservative judge, uh, Judge Hart. He was the D.C. Circuit. What um, Intelligent, Intelligence Court Chief Justice. Yeah. Judge. And uh, just a lovely old man that used to make those. Uh, well, lovely to me as a child, but used to make those uh, beautiful little um, stained glass things to hang in your window. That was his hobby. So yeah. I would go down to his workshop. But apparently he called daddy and said, your wife absolutely cannot go to Cuba. No, he didn't tell him. He told me. Yeah. Uh, what uh, Judge Hart said was, he did not know, but I was making, by the time, uh, the 
uh, Castro's intelligence, um, um, uh, Castro's ambassador had called me, was making arrangements. We had had lunch for me to go. So I was thinking of, I was making arrangements and uh, Judge Hart heard about it and called me in and told me, do you know what will happen when you go there? I said, no, you're not supposed to go there. First of all, you're not a citizen. And secondly, your your husband works for a very strategic, pivotal U.S. organization dealing with national security, and it will directly affect him. I've told you what my take on this is, and you decide. I wouldn't go. Oh, yeah. He, he had uh, the interest, uh, my interest, and once I go there, I can't return to the United States. Yeah, because this was back in the 80s. Because I did not have the American citizenship. And so, and and daddy would be put under surveillance. Scrutiny. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the things that came out, and I love that non-aligned summit story. So you had a good time uh, hanging out and joking with all of these world leaders. But when one of the interesting things that came out of that also is His Royal Highness, the King of Bhutan, invited me, you, and Shreyas, my little brother, to go visit Bhutan for a few weeks. And this was, again, in the 80, early 80s. No Americans were talking about Bhutan. In fact, years later, when I wrote an essay about it, about what I did in India, I had a teacher call me up and tell me that I needed to rewrite the essay. And when I said, why? She said, this is not, Bhutan's not a real country. She goes, this is, this is a lie. And I said, no, it's really a country. And she was like, I would like you to rewrite this essay. So, I mean, Americans had no idea that it was even a country. Um, and this is a te- like DC public school, but um, it was a teacher that told me that there was no such country as Bhutan, so I could not have visited it. But we went there as his guests um, and we uh, went through the Himalayas. The protocol met us at the border of India. Uh, and we went in a Jeep with uh, Chung Shri was his name. I remember he came in the national costume of Bhutan and it was the four of us. Before that, we actually went from laterally to Sikkim. Gangtok, Sikkim. Yeah. And we arrived late and stayed in the Sikkim mansion, governor's yeah. mansion. Yeah. And the next morning, that. the governor uh, told us it's late. Why don't you all go to bed? And, and we could see K2 we'll from the backyard. Not K2, Kanchanaganga. Oh, okay. K2 yeah. is in Pakistan. Yeah, yeah. And the mountain uh, from the back. I remember the gardens. It was really yeah. beautiful. And uh, we just, and there was lots of clouds. We saw wild Suddenly, horses. the mist and clouds. And then we saw Kanchan Ganga, which is the second most um, top, uh, this thing. We saw that. And then we wild gardens and everything. And through which we went through uh, to Bhutan laterally. And then started climbing into Bhutan. Yeah. Along the river Titsi. Yeah. And uh, so and all along the way, you see the seven symbols of Buddhism painted all over rocks and things. And then we got caught in a landslide. The Indian army had to come. That was coming back and had to move. And we had to actually run down the mountain with Sherpas. Remember, Trace and I did that. And then you came. But then we got to Bhutan and we were there. We were supposed to be there for, I think, a month. But we got so bored after two weeks. Well, first we got there and it was like a just a stream of gifts that were coming to our hotel. We stayed at the Grand Hotel, I think, right? It was this big, beautiful hotel and we were getting... Nobody was there. We Nobody were the only was guests. there. We were the only guests. Because there were no foreigners allowed. 
There was no embassy other than no American embassy, no Bangladesh embassy, nothing. The only embassy was because Bhutan is a protectorate of India. And the only ambassador, ambassador was the Indian ambassador. Uh, you know, um, uh, he was the only one there. And so everything in Bhutan will close by two o'clock. The only attraction is the uh, the king playing basketball. Which uh, I used to go see every day yeah. at 2 p.m. And I remember we stayed, We it was so small and there weren't, we, everywhere we went, first of all, we were given yak tea, which we were sick of, which is like this bitter tea with, with tea with yak butter in it, where you have to drink a sip to be polite, if you remember that. And then we would go to the chief justice's house and watch E.T., me and Shreyas, after watching the King play basketball. That got so boring after two weeks because we first, I think the first two days we met the Queen Mother and his sisters, Deachin, and uh, I was calling them by their first names, but there's an honor. Yeah, they put up show for us and all of that, the dragon uh, show. And we had a lot of good time. And then we went to Paru, the hanging temple. The Queen Mother accompanied me. I don't know whether you people were there. And then, and then gifts they were giving us so many, yeah. like bolts of cloth and tankas and like masks of of different. Uh, the king himself gave uh, yeah. the mask to Shreyas. Yeah, we have them all and up the here. for me and for you, something else. And so we. Little gold box with dragons. and Yes, and we came. Um, uh, and then after three weeks, uh, because b- both of you were really just basically attacking me every day for what to do, what next to do, what to do. There's nothing to do. Uh, nothing to do. Uh, all the shops will close. There were no shops, few shops. Everybody goes closed. to sleep in the afternoon and, for uh, hours. You know, there were no no people, nobody to talk to. So after three weeks, I also knew the monsoon was coming. So I went to his, the king, his majesty. But I was doing a lot of important things, environmentally going around and seeing the uh, various places and giving him advice and talking to his bureaucrats and so on. Uh, so I just say his mother about Buddhism, about Mrs. Gandhi and so on. So I told him after three weeks and I said to him, Your Majesty, the monsoon will start. We better head down to India. He said, uh, well, uh, let me check with the weather. And then he came back and told me, and interestingly, the Brigadier General for Border uh, Security at that time was uh, Ashok Dasgupta, friend of ours. Mm-hmm. And he was um, posted on the eastern side of uh, Bhutan. And so he was called in and he confirmed the weather will get bad within the next few days. So they should return home. And so we were, we had a protocol, a car accompanying us ahead of us. And then there was a car in which we were there. There was a protocol car behind us. And while we were coming uh, halfway through to the Indian border, uh, the monsoon started. And we could see from behind that the, uh, the, uh, the mountains uh, were stacking like pancakes, uh, one on top of each other. And... Uh, uh, they were crumbling down and and suddenly slowly we were going very heavy rain and uh, Das Gupta had arranged for uh, the military helicopters to fly over us to see that we were safe but they could not pierce through uh, the mist and so uh, they had 
stopped at some point and had on a walkie-talkie had sent a message we are not able to follow because of the mist and so 17 miles to Funcheng, Funcheling, which is a border town, suddenly everything, our car stopped. Before that, the protocol car had stopped. Before that, a bus carrying local workers from India and Nepal uh, who were working in the gardens, their tea gardens and so on, they had stopped. So we found out what it was, was raining, and there were things were coming down, the mountains were coming down at the back of us. Anytime we could have been covered by Himalayas. And what we found was the road in front of us had vanished. And that was about some, I don't know how many hundred feet below. And so there was only one way uh, to cut through uh, to the side, to go to the, the bend down. And uh, while we were talking, Shreyas had taken a backpack and had gone down. Yeah. We missed brother. him. Yeah. And there he was standing downstairs along with all the other people. Yeah. And the, because so, he was following the uh, yeah. uh, local people. Yeah. And you were afraid. I was afraid. They said they will carry us. And I said no. And then finally, we slowly somehow, I don't know how we, it took us a long time. We went to the down. Uh, thing and quickly fled to the Indian border. So, that was our so we made it. We made it through a landslide. So I know that we said this was going to be journey through America, eighties and nineties. But we've been talking about so many different things, and you'd always taught me that conversation is not linear, which I tend to sometimes um, be an adherent to because I'm American, and it's true. It makes for a very boring conversation. But um, we have been talking about so many other interesting things, um, and I just wanted to kind of bring it back. Um, we talked about, you know, uh, about the non-aligned summit, the dinner that you had or the lunch that you had there and uh, being in Taiwan for a bit and visiting Bhutan. So coming back to the United States um, around the 80s and 90s, I don't know if you have anything, you know, oh, I actually know one of the things I'd made a note that I wanted to ask you about was um, Orlando Letelier. Um, you were having lunch with this gentleman uh, and this was one of these very bizarre stories of the person uh, getting assassinated on the streets of Washington, D.C. Uh, this was in the 70s, so not quite 80s, but um, this was somebody that you had had lunch with. Again, when I say that you're Forrest Gump and you happen to be everywhere. Yeah. That, um, well, that uh, was... Orlando Latelier uh, was, um, uh, you know... Um, Salvador Allende uh, was assassinated. I knew his wife as well, Isabella and, Allende. And who's Salvador Allende? Was the president of Chile. Okay. And was assassinated. Uh, many people call it with the um, uh, IIT, the Telephone International, and so on, and American, some American corporations and CIA, whatever it is. There was a foreign hand, and he was gotten rid of because he was a communist. Orlando Letelier was a minister with him. And, uh, um, and then uh, Pinochet uh, was a high degree of human rights violator. He was a dictator, dictator. and he was an opponent of this Orlando Letelier. Actually, Salvador Allende. And he, was, he became the president. And then um, 
at this time salvador uh, 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 orlando letelier He was the later ambassador. On, he was the ambassador, wasn't he? Later on, became the ambassador. Uh, I don't understand at that time. Pinochet might have uh, lost the election or what, but Orlando Letelier. I had lunch with him at the Cosmos Club about a week and a half or two weeks before that. And uh, in fact, it's very interesting. I had lunch with him, and as I was coming to Cosmos Club, I was told to come through the. Um, Um, side door because women are not supposed to enter. I just ignored the warning and then I just entered. Of with course, it. you did. And they did not know what to do with me. They were looking at me, and they said some people came after me and said you. I said I looked at them, turned back, and I looked at them and went. And then I um, sat at my uh, uh, table, which was reserved by Orlando Letelier. So we had a nice conversation, and then so on, and about Chile, about India, and so on and so forth. And then the next thing I know was he had been he and his assistant Rani Muffet were both were um, uh, targeted while they were driving on the embassy row, and they were killed, assassinated. So that was like a week, like about a week later or something. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, So I wanted to. I know we've kind of weaved all over the place. Uh, did you want to tie things together about the '80s and '90s in the U.S.? Because um, I have this. I'll probably just change the uh, what I've written that this was journey through America for the '80s and '90s. It's really just more your well, personal it is journey. from you know what of everything I did uh, emanated from here. Yeah, I went here and there and there and there. So then we can come back to America uh, some other time. And uh, so, um, I think it's probably a good time to stop. Okay, all right. Um, so I just wanted to thank you then for chatting with us um, today, and um, I will. Um, we will uh, continue having discussions about uh, other things that could be of interest. But I wanted to thank you uh, for doing this with me. And I thought, I know that you had picked, you wanted to hear a little bit of Niels Gade, the Danish composer, Gig. or Kitaro, but wh why don't we, should we just choose Kitaro? I was going to play them both, but let's just maybe go out with just some Kitaro. Kitaro. Yeah. Kitaro. Yeah. Because it's, I think it's, we'll play a little bit of that because I know you like him. I know he's not, well, he is 80s and 90s actually. And um, thank you. And then for everybody else, Um, please do follow and subscribe, uh, and we will be posting shows, uh, as we, uh, come up with different topics and book guests. Um, and so you'll be able to see that on the app and we'll of course send out a note, but, um, you will need to follow and subscribe. So thanks and good night, everyone. And we're going to go out with the new age artist, Kitaro, who my mother loves, uh, and have a good evening. <laughs>